Welcome to This Podcast is Not for Profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets, and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators, and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty, and create more inclusive communities. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died after Minneapolis police officers restrained him by kneeling on his neck during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. While people have been fighting for civil rights for generations, Floyd's death stoked the revolution with unprecedented protests and uprisings around the world. In July 2020, the New York Times reported that as many as 26 million people in the United States alone had participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the weeks following the incident. According to scholars and crowd-counting experts, those protests represent the largest movement in the country's history. Structural racism is not an exclusively American issue. In Canada, the shooting deaths of Ejaz Chaudhry and Chantelle Moore in recent months are just two of the many examples that make it impossible to deny these problems are very much our own. The call to end systemic racism remains at the forefront in media headlines and in our hearts and in our minds. As an organization, while we fight for equity and equal opportunities for all in our community, we know that in order to really do the work, we must also acknowledge and situate ourselves in the systemic and institutional racism that persists in Canada. The past few months have been a time of calling in for us, listening to the voices of black activists and community, sitting in the discomfort of difficult conversations, and examining how we can and will do better. In this series, we hear from local activists and experts who share their insight on allyship through both an individual and organizational lens, how the nonprofit sector can adapt in order to better support racialized communities, and the mental health impacts of racism. I hope you enjoy, and I hope that you are able to learn as much as we did from these conversations. Leo Nupulu Johnson, the founder and executive director of Empowerment Squared, agencies doing some incredible work in the Hamilton community. For the last three years, we've been proud supporters of an academic tutoring and mentoring program working to improve educational outcomes for racialized youth and newcomers. As if founding a charity wasn't enough, Leo has also helped build the first Liberian Learning Center and public library in Liberia and is also United Nations Fellow. So uh, welcome, Leo. Can you please tell us a little bit about your organization and about yourself and when do you find time to sleep? Thank you very much, Michael. And it's an honor for me to be here um, on your podcast. Um, my name is Leo, like you rightly said. Um, finding time to sleep, I often say, is when the body drops. Um, <laughs> so I sleep when that happens. But yeah, um, I came to Canada in 2006 uh, as a government-sponsored refugee and um, came in a category called unaccompanied minor, um, mm -hmm. which means I came by myself without any of my family. Um, I have been living um, by myself as a child in two refugee camps for about nine years prior to that. Wow. Um, and then I, I, I set out to figure out what this new home was going to look like for me. And I immediately zoomed in on how young new Canadians were integrating. What, what was the integration journey like 
for young new Canadians because at the time there was a lot of emphasis on adults because a lot of people saw um, people in the light of the family unit, like mom, dad, children, or dad, children, adult, and children. But there was this unique category now that was emerging with a lot of young children or young people showing up by themselves. And even those who came with their families um, still had to face that challenge of a different type of journey compared to what their parents had to actually deal with. Um, and that's where my, my work began and Empowerment Squared was born after I was one year in Canada. I came in 2006 mm. and in 2007, Empowerment Square was born, um, given my quest of really wanting to understand deeper the challenges that young newcomers were facing in Canada. And that kind of zeroed in around education, depending on how old they were, they were going to spend the next 10 to 15 years of their lives within the education system. And their entire family had one hope when it came to Canada, if nothing else worked, that their children should be able to get access to the quality and kinds of education that they did not have access to. And, and that was where Empowerment Square started as an organization. Hmm. So what led you specifically to create then Empowerment Squared? Was it really anchored in this personal experience you were having? Was it really sort of focused? Because you're talking a lot about sort of education and the importance of education as sort of a pathway out of out of some of these circumstances. So sort of specifically, what led you to create Empowerment Squared? Did you see a gap um, in in the sector? Uh, there was a combination of things. Uh, one of it is that I come from a place where education was the one thing that we would never dream of having access to mm. uh, because it was never available. Even though our parents would do whatever it took for us to get access, it was just still not possible. And if you managed to get access to it, the quality was just so low that you were not set up to compete for anything um, 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 in the future. But yet we, we knew that education was the only way out. Um, there was nothing yeah. else that could take us out. So that was one of it. The other one was, when I was on the refugee camp, a lot of people put their lives on the line for me as a young boy on the camp without my family who didn't know me from anywhere. And some of that I always, I always carried with me as to when I would have ever been in the, in the place and having the opportunity to also do for other people in similar situations. And the third one was the gap. I was shocked when I got here that kids dropped out of school. It, it, I couldn't understand how it was possible that children would drop out of school when they, not, they did not have to pay out of pocket to go to school. Because mm -hmm. where I come from, we have to pay out of pocket. And even if we don't have it to pay, we will sneak our way into the classroom. If we have to mm -hmm. steal our way in, if we can't get in, we will stand to the windows and try to peek through when the teachers are actually teaching. So I, I couldn't wrap my head around how it could have been possible that kids here would drop out of school. And, and that had me so uneasy that I, I didn't just want to understand it, but I wanted to figure out that kids will not miss the opportunity that was here, but also making sure the opportunities were meaningful, they were accessible, and they made sense given the challenges that young newcomers were actually dealing with. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, when you think about the kind of, the, you know, it leads me to think about some of those specific examples, like you, your organization does so much work around education, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the examples and the challenges, you know, in Hamilton that racialized and newcomer youths are facing. Like, what did you find were those gaps? Because as you said, you know, you were in this very different situation where even, you know, you would you would you would go such great lengths to get that education and access it. And here people had access to it on some level, but what are some of those barriers and challenges that they are facing? And what does your organization do to overcome them? 
One of the, the, the first ones that we were confronted with was the fact that in Canada, in Ontario specifically, our mm-hmm. school system is an age-based school system uh, because it's expected that kids are born here, they have the regular you know, attendance at school, so they're able to transition through the different classes at the right age. Yeah. What, we did, what we haven't taken into consideration is that a sizable number of our population now is no longer in that, that same scenario. Most of them have mm-hmm. never been to school for five years of their entire life. Some of them have never, ever been in a school uh, or in an education system. Some of them who have gone to school, depending on what refugee camps or what war-torn country they're coming from, it's been five, to eight to 10 years that there has been no school. But when they get here, we place them in an age-based system that matches their grade with their age, which means in many cases, you have children who are being placed in grades that are five, six levels above their academic ability. So a child may, last time in school may have been grade five, but now they are placed in grade 10 or grade 11 because of how old they are and they've never been to school. It is very clear that they've been set up to actually fail. So yeah. what we've done at Empowerment Square with that specific scenario that has been so effective over the years have been a lot of few things, a lot of things. Number one, we have something called um, our academic literacy program. Mm-hmm. This is where we just help kids develop the social skills and abilities of what it takes to function in our school system. People overlook it, but actually it's the greatest asset that newcomer youth can use to survive in the school system. Like the social setting, what does the yeah. school setting look like? How do you adjust? How do you adapt? How do you accommodate your peers? How do you deal with people every day, you know, in and out as you go to school? The second thing we've, we've, we've narrowed in on has been what we call a summer literacy program. So during the summer, when most of the other kids are going off for summer camps and going for their break, there is no break for most of our students. They, ha- they have like a five day a week, of five hours a day intensive oh, wow. program. So by the time school reopens, we've covered probably close to two levels of the academic system because we're, we're mimicking the, the school's curriculum with additional things that are not in the school curriculum that we believe is important to support them. So we've done that, and then we do this one-on-one mentoring and tutoring all through the year round. The reason we found that effective is that most of the children or uh, youth that we are working with, these are young people who have become adults, some of them are age five, age six. The things they've had to deal with yeah. And if they can survive refugee camps and survive war zones, we realize that we wouldn't need them to reawaken that resilience. Once we can give them the tools and set them on a path and make them believe that it's within reach, you can push. We realize that things turn around quickly and within three to four years, most of these children are operating at grade level when they were three, four levels above their academic ability. And now many of them, we, we ensure that they, they go along the journey to get transitioned to post-secondary education making sure that that journey does not just start to barely getting a high school diploma, but getting it in a way that can transition into post-secondary education, any one of their choice that they want to, to actually pursue. Hmm. That's, that's incredible. And it really shows, I really like this idea of, of awakening that resilience, right. And, and really sort of acknowledging the trauma that they might've faced, but really building off of the strength that they obviously had to have to overcome all of those incredible barriers that they've faced. That is correct. And um, in fact, another point I would mention would be with the family, right? The parents and the adult yeah. caregivers. We often, the way we've designed youth programming in the charitable sector, um, it confuses me sometimes because there is so much emphasis and support given to these youth in isolation of yes. their parents. Yes. And it just doesn't make sense because what we started to notice was that we were undercutting the ability of the parents to be parents. We hmm. supported the kids so much 
that they became little parents over their parents. Oh, interesting. Um, Exactly, because they were sophisticated. They could yeah. run rings around their parents. So the parents started to feel helpless and powerless to even be able to relate to their children. So four years ago, we launched this program called the Information Literacy Program, specifically for parents, empowering them to be able to support their children's education. So mm -hmm. everything from how to navigate online, how to navigate the school board website, how to contact your child's teacher if you're not confident to go to the school and speak to them in person, um, how to use the everyday tools that your children are using as well. At the very least, understanding it so you can have a conversation with them about it. Understanding the school system, how does it work? What are your rights as a parent? What are some of the things that the school is allowed to do and not allowed to actually do? How can you find resources for yourself to make sure that you still have the ability for your child to see you as their parent and not see you as someone who's hopeless and helpless and not able to support them? That's really smart. Uh, you know, I, I, I think people often, uh, you know, especially with parents, when they when they come to a new country, they're often working so hard and can often, you know, as you said, sort of really diverge from their kids in terms of the cultural understanding of the uh, of the of the new society of the of like a language, uh, you know, understanding their kids can, as you said, sort of quickly run laps around them. And so not providing that that support to the parents can really uh, exacerbate problems and really not leverage the kinds of supports that that are possible when the parents are in power. That's, ve that's a very smart approach uh, to take to it, I think. Yeah, and that's what I think, because we're trying to support the whole family as, yeah. as much as we can, even with something as simple as parenting, right? Yeah. People get here doing the orientation for newcomers. You never hear the word child welfare system. It's never mentioned. Mm -hmm. So most newcomers are even unaware of what the child welfare system is in this country until they get in the community and hear that, oh, CAS will take your children away. That's the yeah. first introduction they get to CAS. Oh, wow. and, 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 and no one told them. So people think about it this way. You've grown up as a parent. You have your children. You've always disciplined in the way you have, depending yeah. on what culture, culture you come from. Yeah. You got here. What you know is what you always go to. If yeah. no one introduced you to newer tools for parenting, newer ways to look at parenting in the new society that you are, there's no way you're going to be able to access it. So as a result of that, um, about a year ago, we we started to build a partnership with CAS, mm -hmm. whereas we'll be using our program that CAS can start being more of a proactive um, solution finder in the community and not just reactive when they get a phone call. To say maybe within our program embedded an opportunity for new parenting tools to be introduced to parents. How can CAS support these kind of programs? Something as simple as providing um, um, training for kids who qualify. People did not even know that between the ages of 13 to 18, children qualify to get the child, uh, the child minding certificate where mm -hmm. they can mind up to two children, for example, mm -hmm. even though they're young. But once they get the training and they are certificated, they can mind up to two children. So at Empowerment Square now, we are launching this new program where we'll be covering the full cost of training youth within these marginalized communities so that let's say if there's an event, community event that all the parents have to go to, their own youth in your own community are able to babysit the children so they don't have to be worried about mom can't do this or dad can't do this because babysitters are too expensive to go out there to get. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's a huge, huge barrier when it comes down to, you know, I think a lot of, especially a lot of newcomer families are often doing shift work. They're often trying to balance multiple, multiple jobs, multiple part-time jobs. And sometimes finding that, that kind of um, uh, child minding, as you said, can be extremely difficult and there's cultural differences, right? You might've had, especially if you had a large family supporting you back at home and you were sort of used to provide, you know, care being provided by older siblings that can be very much frowned upon, um, you know, uh, locally. And so it's really smart, again, to be working with CAS and really sort of getting ahead of that so that these things don't escalate and become, you know, um, you know, kind of fought on on the wrong level, right, in a a sense. Yep. Yep. And and, and it has been great. I must give it up to CAS for their willingness. This is very different and new for them. They themselves have said it, but I'm, I'm glad that they opened up to allow this to happen. Amazing. Um, I was wondering if we if we could talk a little bit about some of the barriers <clears throat> that some of the some of the youth and families that that are coming in through your program are facing. I know you recently yeah. received uh, a large youth opportunities fund from the Ontario Trillium Foundation to do some really interesting work um, with uh, racialized and new newcomer youth. And I know yourself, you've been also speaking a lot around some of the Black Lives Matter pl- protests and some of the issues right now that are that are really sort of being highlighted by this uh, by this movement uh, around the world. Uh, I know personally myself, I've been doing a lot of reflection like you, um, you know, my my family um, were refugees to this country in a different context, in a different city. You know, we immigrated in the 80s after fleeing from uh, from Russia during, you know, during the Cold War. And and we came to, you know, a city um, where a lot of people, you know, looked like us. And we had that sort of um, that privilege of 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 fitting into the kind of cultural norm and being able to sort of fit in. And and I've been doing a lot of reflection myself on how my experience with uh, with being a refugee is different than. Uh, you know, other individuals and what are some of those barriers? And, and you know, as a funder, um, you know, what are some of the things that we should be doing to, in order to address these things at a systemic level? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about both this this new program and maybe link it back to, 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 to your programming and some of the things that you guys are doing in order to address some of these more systemic racial barriers that, you know, I think permeate so many levels of our society. Society and that are finally sort of, I think, coming to the open because of, uh, of some of these protests. Yeah, um, it's when we were fortunate enough. Um, this is something we've been working on for years because mm-hmm. we've made the argument that we can't just keep supporting newcomer and, and racialized youth on this one-off, right? Kids come, yep. we can take just so many that we're able to take based on our capacity. Um, and it has worked. For the last 13 years, we've done this consistently. And we've seen up to 250 children a year. We've seen uh, graduates from high school. We've seen graduates from university now, from from um, um, from chiropractors to mental health nurses to psychiatric nurses. Now, all some of them started a program in grade eight mm-hmm. and never Amazing. had a had a dream of ever making it beyond high school mm-hmm. and just picked up the motivation and did not stop until they got here. So the new program was all meant to say, how do we elevate this at the systems level? Because mm. it's one thing to run these programs and run these projects, right? Um, but it's another thing to start thinking through how do we influence the system to allow an innovation like this to become a part of the ecosystem? Yeah. Because if you look at it, I know many a times we wish the school board can transform overnight and become something else, right? That is not possible. If you look at institutions, 
-hmm. It takes a long time for institutions to be able to move. It's just the nature of how institutions are, especially massive institutions that have all kinds of different angles to them. So instead of us waiting to say, let's wait till the school board gets to a point that they can get the resources and everything they need to do this, can we start to look at other ways of innovating in the, within the system that allows this to happen? And this is where this whole school readiness academy came from, the idea of a school readiness academy. And our idea is to say, when newcomer children or even racialized children or, or children from minority community who are here, who've always been in Canada, but are facing some of the same barriers that newcomers are facing, either due to poverty or other things. We have a one-year full program that while they're in the school, we're working with the school system to see where the areas of deficiencies are. Mm -hmm. And instead of them being at school just there for the sake of being there and spending half of the day in ESL classes that they don't need, we can work with the school board where they're still attending school to do the courses that are required, but other areas that they are not prepared for, then they can be at a school readiness academy, but still being able to build up the credits that they need because what we're doing syncs with the school board, but we are better placed to be able to provide that type of service because of the resources we have um, available, whether it's from the cultural context, whether it's from being able to do some of the extracurriculum pieces that the school board is not able to accommodate, mm -hmm. whether it's being able to spend a longer time with these students to be able to do the work in a certain way that they wouldn't have at the school because they are 20 in a classroom and the teacher has to try and deal with all 20 of them. Um, so all of those things we can do in a more flexible and agile way that the school board might not be able to actually do. But instead of just running as a project, what if it becomes part of the ecosystem where now the school board can even start to refer students to be like, you know what, six months for you in the school readiness program might actually help you because here are certain things that you really need to work on, but we may not be able to actually provide it directly through the school board or through the school system itself. Mm -hmm. And it starts to feel like this is part of the system. And this is where this idea came from. For the last five years, we've been working on it and finally got to a place where we could put a proposal before Trillium to mm -hmm. say, will this make, this make sense to you as a test? And, you know, let's test this, this out based on the lessons that we've learned, but also based on some of the research that we actually need to, to do. So we are excited um, for this opportunity. Um, we will be mobilizing more resources. Trillium has given us up to 60% of what we actually need. Mm -hmm. So we will be going out there to other funders to see how we can build in the 40%. Um, because we don't want to do this um, and say, oh, because we don't have enough resources, we need to cut corners. We mm -hmm. want to do it making sure, and this is where things go, good, good ideas go bad, in my opinion, when you start yes. to cut corners because there are not resources available. So we want to make sure we have all the resources available to do this at the level that even um, the youth themselves coming to this program, we appreciate that the system can think of them in this way mm -hmm. and be able to offer them something that is so valuable that they themselves are walking and be like, wow, I like this. Like this, I want to be here. This is a place I want to actually be. So that is what we've been doing and tying this back into, into efforts against some of the things we're seeing with anti-racism and our programming has always been this. My argument and what I've always said to people is this. Our community has been so overwhelmed with fighting for justice and equality, racial equality, to the point where we've been left with no time to build. Mm. So even sometimes when we win these little victories um, in the fight for equal justice or equality, we are unable to take advantage of the opportunities that emerge because we spend all the time fighting and we're so overwhelmed with the, with the fight and, and, and that we didn't build. So we, make, we win one victory and we find out that 10 years later, we are back to the same place because none of us were able to come to the table to be able to participate in the opportunities that emerge because none of us seem to be qualified or prepared simply because 
Why others were preparing, we were here fighting just to have a place, hmm. but just to have a voice. So my attitude is to those of our allies out there, even to funders, I've challenged funders on this, give us the opportunity to fight with one hand while we build with another hand. Yeah. So that we are not so overwhelmed by the fight that in the end, when we win, and you know, now time for all of us to participate, we realize again, we are marginalized in participating in opportunities that are available simply because we've been fighting while everybody else has been preparing to take advantage of what the future has to offer. So at Empowerment Squared, our approach is to say, we will speak out, we will do what we have to do, but we are not going to neglect building because when the time comes for us to have a chance at the table, we need to make sure we are prepared to participate the way that we should be able to participate. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting way to put it. I really like that idea of uh, of the kind of impact that that kind of having to fight for that seat at the table and the sort of the the almost uh, you know having to deconstruct something right to take something yep. apart to reveal the problems in it the the kind of emotional and physical and you know spiritual toll that that can actually have in terms of creating those new structures those new systems those new opportunities as you said to sort of be able to then change things and really shift uh, towards this, uh, you know, this this other way, and I, I really, I really think this program that you're working on with the school as this like really close partner with the with the individuals and the people going through it really makes a lot of sense in in terms of thinking about how to build. Like you're almost building infrastructure around the students so that they fit better into these in, into these systems, and so the systems can pivot and adjust. Correct, and 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 that's been the whole idea because we've said we have to be innovative. I know mm -hmm. sometimes we want a school board to be everything. And let's yeah. be honest, that institution was not built to be that agile. That's right. And, and we can wait for the day that we can deconstruct everything and start from scratch, which I don't think is anytime soon. And children's lives depend on it every yeah. single day. Or we can start to innovate around the school board or the school system in a way that even if it decides to pivot, it wouldn't have to collapse because it will already yes. have supporting infrastructure through which it can channel some of its energy. Yeah, no, it's a very, very sort of, I think, uh, smart approach to, to that. And I'm wondering, I mean, I think that's actually a really good opportunity to kind of step back and maybe think a little bit more broadly about the charitable se sector and some of the stuff right now that I think COVID uh, and, and the kind of struggles that a lot of organizations are having right now are sort of um, revealing some of these kind of structural inequalities that are revealing some of the gaps in the system that are revealing some of the ways in which people can easily fall through them. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, we know that one of the calls to action from anti-racism advocates is increasing funding to black led organizations and organizations specifically doing kind of anti-racism and anti-oppressive work. Um, you know, as an organization ourselves, we're trying to incorporate these in, in at different levels. Sort of, we know that it, it has to take place on a cultural level, on a policy level, on a on a fund, you know, on the way that we fund. You know, we've been working to create a diversity and inclusion committee, and we just actually started up a social justice reading group to deal with that cultural level. Um, we're really looking at our policies and business operations and making sure that that's in there. And in our grants, we've been really moving much more towards some of the things that you've been talking about here, which include things like flexibility, supporting smaller grassroots organizations, working, uh, you know, funding the kinds of programs that can do these kind of systems level changes. And, and, and specifically with our root funding, which we'll be implementing in the next, uh, in the next year, it really is about putting 
organizations back in the driver's seat. I think too often funders are directing work. You know, they're they're creating kind of these 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 funds that will put that will say this is what we want to fund right now and people have to fit into that, right? And I think that's actually a really, you know, that downplays the expertise of of yeah. people you know, of these agencies who are doing the work, who are in contact with the people with with the individuals who understand the barriers and really shifting that I think is is so important in terms of of of, of truly empowering empowering organizations to do the kind of work that they're doing. In the last few months, we've been lucky um, that the community has really rallied um, because of the COVID response. The government has provided a pretty significant amount of money for us to invest into. We've launched our own COVID response fund. I know your organization has received has received some uh, some money to for the, for your access program for culturally appropriate food options. And actually, we're involved with sponsoring other organizations like Refugee Hamilton Center for Newcomer Health uh, as well. And we've really tried to take again that kind of lens to, uh, of sort of diversity and inclusion and whatnot in in this. And we're really excited to be supporting programs by Stewart Memorial Church, uh, and 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 you know that are directly empowering and supporting Black youth through mentorship and leadership uh, and and through basic needs provision and and sort of working with that. But even though we're working every day to improve these kind of lives in our local community, we also recognize that we can do better, we need to do better, and we need to listen. So I was wondering, you know, what are your insights on the sort of anti-racism, anti-oppressive work that needs to be done in the charitable sector more broadly? And, and, and do you have any sort of suggestions about the kinds of changes you would like to see, uh, you know, both at funding, on program level, on all these sort of different levels within the sector? I know it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I will try my best <laughs> to yeah. see how I can come at it. Um, yeah. I, I think, first of all, uh, there's a serious issue going on here. Um, what I intentionally or unintentionally, the charitable sector, by and large, has avoided taking this issue head on. Mm -hmm. um, and not because people are bad people, but just because of the complexity as it involves what type of funders is funding who or who are the key players in, yep. the, in the charitable sector. And it's almost gotten to the point where the word advocacy is a scary word in the charitable sector. Yes. Yep. It's become a scary word to even mention because it starts to look like you are up against the very people that are funding you in many cases, um, um, to be honest, yep. because if your funders don't seem to be ready at that level, you are like, how am I going to do this? And this is where I think there's been a serious letdown of our communities across the board, not just black communities, period, just across the board, I care less which race you're from. Mm -hmm. There's been a serious letdown of our community in the sense that organizations that are on the front lines are supposed to be serving a dual capacity. They're supposed to be delivering and facilitating these services and supports, but also being the ones serving as advocates for the communities then to the funders. Because yeah. we've had for years funders funding certain things and charitable organizations will tell you, oh, we know that doesn't work. But the conversation stops just among themselves. It hmm. never gets to the funder to say, you know what? We are grateful for this money, but we cannot take it because based on the lessons learned, we know hmm. that this will not work. Are you willing to have a conversation about thinking through what works so that your money can be invested properly? We are not doing it. And this is where we are letting down the funders we're letting down our community and we're letting everybody down in the whole entire ecosystem because we've become so worried about securing our funding that we're okay with taking whatever is available to us and not rocking the boat because rocking the boat might mean losing our funding um, yeah. in the end when it all shakes down. So we have to get to a place as a charitable sector for funders to start facilitating and being open 
to listening to frontline organizations that are the experts, to be, to be willing to take sometimes the harsh criticisms, to be willing to say, you know what, we got this funding for the last three years, and we have to be honest with you, it did not work. It is not working. Can we rethink it through rather than always pretending like, oh, we missed one more thing, let's just add one more thing and it will work. Or we missed two more things or using this term that people say is a missed opportunity. I don't like to hear that term missed opportunity mm -hmm. because it almost feels like you are intentionally missing the opportunity <laughs> rather than acknowledging what needs to be done. Yeah. And the second thing I will say, we've, because of this, we find ourselves just managing problems in the charitable sector. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be working ourselves out of jobs. Mm -hmm. it, it, the goal is to be to work the goal should be to work ourselves out of um out of jobs now i know sometimes the issues are so entrenched it's going to take decades and decades of consistent work on but we can't keep managing these problems and scratching the surface because going deep is too complicated and difficult and we are worried that it may not align with funders directives so as a result of that we work our way around just being within the margin of what funders are so we yeah. find ourselves chasing the dollars every year. Two years later, the funder wants to fund mental health. Three years later, the funder wants to fund early childhood education. So now we switch our mission to become yep. early childhood. Another five years, they want to fund elderly people. And then now we switch our mandate to become elderly people. So <laughs> my idea yeah. here is we need to get to a place where we're not chasing funding instead we are positioning ourselves to say, here are the issues the community is dealing with. It's not based on the 10 requirements that a funder gives us. It's based on what is actually happening on the ground. And here is the kind of work is going to have to take to actually do it. And the last point I would mention would be, it is only in the charitable sector that I see funders are comfortable with one-year business plans. I don't yeah. know of any other sector that you take to the bank a one-year business plan and the bank would be like, yeah, that's great. We will give you a loan or we will invest, or an investor will be like, we invest in somebody whose business plan only stops at one year, or only stops at two years. But funders have led non-for-profits down the route where we have become just one-year business plans, op like operations. And yeah. that is the craziest thing ever. We're not going to get any problems solved with one-year business plan. We have to start doing five to 10-year business plans. But no funder is giving us that kind of room, that kind of ability to say, we want to reduce the high school dropout rates by 50% in the next 10 years. And here is what the business plan is going to look like. Let's talk about solutions and not just managing the, the issues. So those would be some of my immediate thoughts on it. And when we talk about increasing funding, I'm being very careful as to what that means, because mm -hmm. you can just increase funding for black organizations that are doing anti-racism work. What does anti-racism work mean? Mm -hmm. it, it, it has all kinds of different angles to them. It could be the tutoring program down the street. It could yeah. be the mental health program down the street because anti-racism work has two sides to it. There's the proactive and there is the reactive. Yeah. And here's what I said. If a lot more black children have a chance of becoming lawyers, have a chance of becoming public health workers, have a chance of becoming working in a public service, we will start to realize that there is a greater influence on what type of decisions are emerging from these spaces because there are multiple voices in there now and not one dominant voice. That's what I think we have to make sure we are investing across, not, we're not just investing in a fight, we're also investing in the building side to make sure that we can yeah. balance it out. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear, um, you know, your perspective on this. And I think we've been, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we're looking at is precisely the kind of funding mechanism that you're talking about. And our sort of root funding is really going to focus on this kind of five year, 
you know, five-year agency-based funding that's flexible, that's based on evidence, that's tied in much more to relationships and outcomes, that's tied into a strategic plan, and that actually actively tries to avoid mission drift. You know, if you're tied in and your outcomes are associated with this one thing, but it's not working, I, I want, I want, you know, that agency to feel comfortable coming to us and saying, it's not working, but I think we know how to make it work, right? Or we want to try this in order to make sure that it, you know, that we're ultimately solving the problems our organization was created to solve, which is, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever, whatever it is there, but really putting that power back into the organization so that they're not worried year after year after year, um, you know, about, about a program sustaining, you know, the organization, right? It should be the other way around. And that is, let me just use COVID as an example. This is how COVID has exposed us. Yes. COVID has come in a way where most of us don't even know if half of our staff will have a job in the next six months. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we can't know that because everything is on pause because all of our staff are working on one year, six months to one year contracts, six yeah. months to one year. So because of that, even our staff don't have the ability to plan because they're like, I might be looking for a job in the next one year. I, I, yeah. I don't even know if I have a job after the next one year or so. And what COVID has also done, COVID has exposed the fact that we've managed these problems for a long time. We haven't solved them. To even know that a lot of people in our community are not able for their children to access um, to online learning from home. Talk about accessing the Internet. This is not a COVID problem. This has been a long existing problem. COVID has only exposed it in a way. To even know that up to 72% of all the families, none of them have a device in a household. So how are the children doing their homework? How are the children keeping up with most of the schooling, even before COVID-19, most of the resources they need to access is online based. They have to go to websites. They have to go. So how are they surviving in this ecosystem when not even one device exists in the house? And then we, we, we quickly realize that what COVID is doing, COVID is showing us because if we have five year plans, like you said, or 10 year plans or four year plans, right? What this would have done, it would have allowed us to adjust much better. Because we would have been like, okay, we know everybody's here for the next three years or for the next four years or so. So it's time for all of us to hunker down on this business and decide that we, we, we respond the way we will respond. Instead of now waiting, the emergency funds that, were, that have been provided have been great in helping us. But I say to myself, I wonder if this was the attitude consistently and not in a reactionary mode. Yeah. Yeah. Right? All of a sudden, the things that funders would have told you will never work or it has to be put there before they can do this. All of a sudden, everybody has become innovative. Yeah. Everybody has found ways to make it work somehow. So I'm hoping that even after COVID-19 or whatever the new normal is going to be, we keep the spirit of innovation, of flexibility, of relationship building so that we're not just funding ob- objectives on paper. We are funding something deeper than just what, what we're actually seeing there and preparing for the long term that people are empowered, that when emergency hits, yes, they might need our support, but they will have some level of inbuilt resilience to fight for themselves as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think this is the one thing with with this crisis that I think, you know, gives me a lot of hope is that it's really peeling back the layers of of problems that have always been there. 
and that we've been reacting to, but that all of a sudden, you know, I think we've shown, we've proven that as a society, we do have the ability to pivot rather quickly and that it is really comes down to a will. Like we have to have that will to, to, to make these changes. And some of them are going to be extremely difficult and some of them will require us to make some, you know, some sacrifices and whatnot, but that these are important that we need to sort of, you know, as you said, that like just, Right now, COVID's revealed that access to the internet is a huge problem, right? But that was always there. Like kids yeah. were always facing those barriers and were unable to access the resources that other kids in their class had because of their socioeconomic status, because they had access to devices and all the newest things. That's yeah. no different. That is exactly true. And, and in fact, to your point, with these things always being there and actually overlooked is actually even more important. And I think funders have to realize this. Let's start to make sure we are actually treating the charitable sector the same way. Yes. And, and, yes. and we shouldn't be treating them any different. When you go to do business, you are fully aware that there's a possibility that there may be losses. Yeah. You are fully aware that there are possibilities. You do everything to minimize your losses, but that does not necessarily mean that there wouldn't be. So this whole attitude that we are afraid to fund organizations when we don't have 100% guarantee that they will be successful I think it's false hope. Yeah. There's no yeah. way we can have, we have to be thinking about, okay, how do we make sure we fund these organizations in a way that even if there are risks they need to manage, they can manage it to become successful and be willing sometimes to take our losses if it doesn't work. As long as everybody is doing what they're supposed to actually do. And sometimes if a particular strategy doesn't work, let's not make it to be a punitive way that because mm -hmm. it did not work. Let's rather say, you know what? Let's re let's study this. Let's understand what went wrong, yeah. what didn't happen the right way that led to the kind of results that we got. I think that openness that, you know, changing and moving away from that scarcity model to one of abundance where where we're not pitting people against each other to compete for these scare res scarce resources. And so therefore, they are naturally afraid to bring these things up and and but rather that they're that they feel open to say this didn't work. This is why. Let's make sure that nobody else goes down this path, right? Let other yep. organizations that are doing this work learn from us, learn from our successes, learn from our challenges. Uh, you know, I mean, I think this would be ultimately, this would be something that I, I would love to see more of in our sector and more of that kind of open sharing um, outside of the bounds of that scarcity. So in many of my podcasts, I, I, I end with, a, with uh, the same question. And it's basically, you know, I ask, uh, if you had a magic wand or unlimited budget, what would you what would you do to improve our community and why? That's a that's a very uh, powerful question in many ways. And, mm -hmm. and here's what I would actually say to that. I think we should be more focused on who can really get the job done. And if mm -hmm. we need to work with them to make sure the, the, the shortcomings that they face needs to be worked on or needs to be. And it's not just simple as saying get a charitable partner. For me, it's mm -hmm. not practical. Not all organizations have that kind of relationships or deep relationships to go yeah. in the community. And sometimes there's an extra burden for charitable organizations. It's not easy to manage these things. I think we need to move beyond funding being just whether you're charitable or not. Because being charitable does not mean you're not corrupt. Being mm -hmm. charitable does not mean yeah. you don't have lapses. Being charitable does not mean you don't have the same shortcomings that organizations that are not charitable are actually dealing with. Charitable status is just who can write a very good application to the government and get charitable status. So mm -hmm. I think we need to stop defining our funding and the ability of organizations to perform being based on charitable or not. I agree with some funding. We have to meet compliance, but we need to start advocating more and more that let's base the funding on who can really get the job done. 
And if it means we have to create some extra capacity to enable them to get it done because they are well-placed to get it done, so be it. That's what mm-hmm. innovation is. But right, this black and white, by the time you get the report or the grant requirements, 50% of the entire community is caught out immediately just by yeah. reading it. And they don't even bother to engage as a result because they're like, we wouldn't, there are communities in Arnold and for a long time that don't want to become registered charities, period. They do amazing work, but they got zero interest of being registered charities. They do what they do, they do it well, and that's where they want to focus. Or they don't want to grow. They don't have a, a, a plan of wanting to be the next big organization on the block. They focus on very strategic problems in our community and very important ones. So if I had money to wave a magic wand, I will democratize how funding is done to be mm. based on who in our community gets the job done compared to who has charitable status and who doesn't have it. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are important. But I think it's, 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 it's a false assumption to assume that that is an indicator of who's well run and who's not. Yeah. Well, it seems like I think a thread that you've been talking about a lot is really about understanding and empowering, you know, organizations that are doing good work and really sort of separating that out from the kind of, you know, maybe structures or like the, the the shorthands that we're used to sort of saying this organization does good work because they have this status or okay. or the, the uh, which I think are sort of, you know, as you said, are important, but some but they're not the end all and be all. Right. And and what are we missing as a result of that? What are the things that we're missing? And I think this is, you know, this is the broader discussion that we're having right now around around the impact of structural racism as well. I think, you know, it's what are we missing when 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 these kind of structures are preventing these things from from, uh, you know, coming to the surface or seizing opportunities. Right. Yeah, because if you look at the color of charitable organizations, you start to see that it's dominantly white. Yes. If you look yeah. at a color of organizations that are not charitable, you start to see that it's dominantly racial groups. Yeah, that's right. And maybe you need to, you might need to understand maybe why. Because yeah. it may not just be because they're not able to apply and get charitable status. There may be, it's, there may be all kinds of issues that has nothing to do with whether they're well run or not. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, this stigma has been created that uh, cultural groups or, or racialized organizations are not well run. That is a sentiment in our society. It's not mm-hmm. said that way, but the way the requirements come down the line is like a racialized group being able to participate means they need to find a charitable organization. First of all, you look at the power structure there already, the power dynamics that you've yeah. created. Yep. It's, it's, it's already a problem in and of itself that I'm not finding a charitable organization because I need mentoring. Most of the time, it's not mentoring. I'm going to get in it because I don't have a choice. I have to go to them to be able to participate because most of these organizations to be honest, are well run. In yeah. many cases, sometimes we have to do very little. Sometimes we even learn from them in some innovative ways that they get up because when you don't have a lot of money, you tend to be very innovative. Yeah. So they have yeah. other innovative ways to go about things and we learn. As, and you know, those of us that have charitable status and I feel bad all the time when the entire community comes to me because they feel comfortable. And you know, we are a black organization, the leaders, they are black. So the entire community is pouring up to us Hmm. to help sponsor applications. And we don't have the capacity to do five, six, seven sponsored applications. Hmm. I, I don't even have a full-time book. I don't even have a part-time bookkeeper, right? I, got, I cannot afford to hire a bookkeeper, but I have to sponsor like seven different applications. How am I going to manage it? I don't have the, the workforce to be able to actually manage it. So you, we are almost enforcing the same racial inequities. We are also reinforcing some of the very issues on one hand we are saying we're trying. And I keep saying, don't get me wrong. I understand why charitable status makes sense and is important. But I think we've we've grown beyond the stage. The thinking that went into charitable status is three decades old. Yeah. It 
needs to be re- it needs to be rethought through. We're in different times. We've had an explosion of all kinds of technologies and people who are doing things in all kinds of innovative ways. But we've been stuck in this old rule, and, you know, charitable or not charitable. Hmm. Thank you so much for all of your uh, insights, Leo. It's been really uh, great speaking with you and uh, and uh, keep on doing the amazing work that you and your organization are doing in the community. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Let's continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and United Way Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube.